I'm your host, Allison Braden, and this is Southern Wonder, a place for curiosity in the New South. In his preface to the first folio of Shakespeare's works, Ben Jonson wrote that Shakespeare is not of an age, but for all time. His works have resonated with generation after generation since they were written, and his writing had and continues to have a tremendous impact on English letters. My guests tonight are two professors of English at the University of North Carolina, Charlotte, Dr. Jennifer Monroe, and Dr. Kirk Melnikoff. Welcome. Hi. Hi. Thank you. I am going to shamefully admit here <coughs> that the only plays I've read all the way through are Romeo and Juliet and A Midsummer Night's Dream. Uh, so let's get started with a little Shakespeare 101. <laughs> um, Dr. Melnikoff, can you give us a little background on Shakespeare's world? What did life look like then? And what were some of the major events going on at the time? One of the things that is very resonant in the period and, and would have been for Shakespeare is the post-Reformation period. Uh, a lot of religious change had happened in the decades leading up to Shakespeare's life, and uh, there was a lot of concern uh, about uh, Catholic Spanish influence, um, worries about the potential for violence. It was, it was a tense time. Um, with that, though, there was a lot of exciting things happening in London. You start to see permanently built playhouses uh, coming to London, and uh, it was providing, uh, a, I think, a really exciting environment for what would have been a very young, ambitious playwright and actor to uh, ply his trade. London is is becoming a really a big city, pushing 200,000 inhabitants, still having some bouts with plague from during certain years, but I think there was a lot of uh, artistic energy. So this was kind of the juncture between the medieval times and the Renaissance, is that right? Yeah, I, I mean, people were more and more wondering, rethinking what the medieval, what it was. Um, I think it's generally he's seen as a part of the Renaissance, but I think more and more people are kind of making that line a little thinner than it used to be between what, what defined a medieval period and what defined the Renaissance. And one of the reasons I think they're, one of the reasons they're rethinking it is, is just the notion of Renaissance and medieval, that kind of division suggests that, you know, there was a kind of great awakening <laughs> that happened in Shakespeare's time that um, is contrasted with some kind of darkness and illiteracy or, you know, this, the dark ages as people would refer to it. And, and so I think more and more people, especially scholars, will refer to it as the early modern period mm -hmm. instead of the Renaissance, which is a, it's a, it's a different way of understanding the period as being kind of pre or pre-modern, early modern, pre what, what we know now. And, and there are many ways that um, what was going on in Shakespeare's England anticipates what's been fully developed in, in our experiences now, or more fully developed early capitalism, for example. How did Shakespeare fit into that world? Who was he? So he was a son of a glover. <laughs> He fits interestingly into that world, which is, I think, one of the reasons why you get the debates about whether he actually wrote the plays or not. Um, he wasn't part of the landed classes, or at least not, he didn't come from a kind of wealth that we associate with um, the social mobility that he eventually experienced um, as a landowner himself. But he was, I think, very much wrapped up in, in the daily workings of London. Jen is right. It was a, a vibrant uh, theatrical community. I think he he participated in that. There's a lot of 
wondering about how we got along with the university educated mm-hmm. set of that. People like Christopher Marlowe, Robert Greene. Robert Greene didn't seem to like him very much. Uh, he was also an actor, and I think that, as I said before, I think that's really essential. That makes him different than somebody like Marlowe, somebody like Greene, in that he thought of theater not just from the side of a writer, but from somebody who was on the stage, as from somebody who played different roles and actually experienced what that might have been like. And that kind of experience shapes him in ways that you really don't see, I would argue, from most of, if not all, of his contemporaries. And if, if the question is what makes Shakespeare Shakespeare, I would say acting, the, his, his working as an actor, probably f- for a long time, even after he was a successful playwright, made a big difference. To what, to what he was interested in, how he thought about the world. Yeah, we think of the Shakespeare we know now, which is a Shakespeare that um, we've put very much on a pedestal and as being this this kind of high art, but it, that was not Shakespeare in Shakespeare's England. And so I think what we're both saying in different ways is how much he was part of that, the mingling, the day-to-day mingling of theater and the day-to-day mingling of London city life. What would be a good modern day analog to what Shakespeare was in the day. Was this a kid from the, a middle class kid who moves to LA to try to be an actor or did he have uh, money and a background that allowed him to move easily into that world? Was he struggling? It's a hard, that's a hard question. I think, you know, as the son of an artisan, a Glover, uh, who was pretty successful, his father would ultimately become, I think in the late 60s, uh, what we would call the mayor of Stratford. His father had designs on becoming a gentleman. That's one of the reasons I think Shakespeare pursued it uh, in his mid-career. So I think we're talking about somebody who had some connections, but was definitely kind of a middling sort person with a lot of connections to the artisan communities. There was actually a printer in London uh, by the name of Richard Field, who uh, came from Stratford as well. And uh, Field had something to do with the publication of Shakespeare's first, uh, probably the most popular, the most successful work that Shakespeare ever wrote was not a play. It was actually the poem uh, Venus and Adonis, and Field had something to do with that. So that's probably the set that he felt most comfortable with. And I think that there is some sense that, again, that the university set, that crowd might have been a little uncomfortable with him. Green, Robert Green, famously calls him an upstart crow in 1592. That's how we know he's in London. Yeah. Why did he call him an upstart crow? <laughs> <laughs> because he was presuming uh, more than he than he had a right to. Um, he was not university educated. He was he was an actor. We would know that if he went if he went to university, we would know because the universities kept good records, and so we have those things. Um, we don't know that he went to grammar school because the school the grammar school in Stratford we don't have the records. But since his father was was the equivalent of a mayor, he would have more than likely gone to grammar school. Um, so I think there's a kind of there's pretension there. Um, Green didn't live much longer. <laughs> He only lived another year. Uh, actually, that was not another year. He died that year. So when when that line came out, so he didn't have much of an opportunity to continue. Are you saying it's bash. because he said that? He might have been punished. I don't know by <laughs> higher powers. I don't know, but uh, that was. And it's sad for Green because Green just is my little Green thing. I mean, he was just he was the popular <laughs> See, I told writer you of the talk day. About Green. I know it's a sad. I, I blame my advisor for one day telling me I should work on Robert Green, and somehow that happened. But Green, in terms of popularity in terms of editions of his work by the uh, restoration. He was actually neck and neck with Shakespeare, about 100 mm. different editions. So, But he gets remembered 
as the guy who made went after the bard, which is unfortunate for him. Dr. Monroe, is it fair to call Shakespeare the most important writer in the English language? It's interesting you didn't ask if he's the best writer in the English language, Hmm. because I think that's where people often go when they ask if he's the most important. I think he's been an incredibly important writer, and in many ways because he is, I would say, a very good, his texts, his plays are are amazing. They're so rich, so full of complexity, um, and they're still relevant today. So we're still talking about Shakespeare 400 years from now, universities, high schools still require Shakespeare courses more than any other, I think, single author in the English language. Um, most people would recognize Shakespeare's name if, if you they would know who you're talking about. So I think in all of those ways, he's he is maybe, maybe the most important writer. Um, is he the best writer? Um, I don't know. You think he's the most important writer? Yes. I'll oh, just say see, yes. He says yes. Uh, but I wouldn't say he's the best. I yeah. just, I think that, you know, for in terms of influence, in terms of his present day mm-hmm. stature, I mean, at UNC Charlotte, we have three people who, who you know, teach Shakespeare who were hired to do that. That's some, you know, some, mm-hmm. it tells you something about how much we, we uh, value his work. Um, I think he is still being staged regularly across the world in all kinds of different environments. Um, different languages. Different languages. Yeah. Uh, he has exerted a powerful influence in prisons in, in this country and in England and other places, Australia, I think. I mean, I think his work mm-hmm. has really uh, had an enormous impact, and, and, and not just directly. I mean, other writers you know, could just name almost any great writer and they will have some relationship with with Shakespeare. I think the best writers and Shakespeare is an example of of them, I would plural is are the the ones who can speak to what's happening in their own time but also resonate with what's happening with people later. Like they're they're tapping into something about life that they're able to communicate in such a way that makes us keep thinking about life's complexities every time we read them. And that's the experience I have with Shakespeare. And it's not only Shakespeare, but I have it in a unique way when I read Shakespeare. Some say that Shakespeare invented modern English. Is that a fair statement to make, Dr. Melnikoff? <laughs> I would say no. I think that's wishful thinking. I think he was a part of some exciting things that were happening at the, at the end of the 16th century into the 17th century. You know, many people say he invented 10,000 words, all that sort of thing. I think it's more on the, you know, I've heard more like 700, uh, if even that. I mean, how do you know that? Uh, I mean, we have, we have manuscripts and printed documents. I mean, I think it's very hard to gauge that. But I, I do think he he put he did things with English um, that were important. Uh, he was really really good with with rhythm uh, and verse. Um, he was called sweet uh, sweet Shakespeare during the day, um, but I don't I wouldn't I wouldn't go there in terms of giving him credit for for inventing modern English. No. No, he gets credit for many of those neologisms by way of the Oxford English Dictionary and the way that that will attribute, you know, maybe a first usage of the word or first documentable usage of the word. And and that doesn't necessarily mean that Shakespeare is the person who invented it. So, but that's part of where that 
that mm-hmm. sense that he invented language came from. But he was, he was, you know, Kirk said it about rhythm, but Shakespeare, Shakespeare understood language, I think, in really complicated and interesting ways. The rhythm of it, the way um, putting, putting ideas together in words, um, in not, not just necessarily poetic language, but even his, his prose is very poetic, too. So, yeah, I think he, he had a facility with language that um, is admirable. Where did that come from? <laughs> well, I, I think <clears throat> this is how I would answer that question. I, I, I think he was fortunate to have lived when he did because thing, it was a very momentous time in English history. I think, you know, I've already mentioned the Reformation. Um, humanism had been around for many decades. Um, there were there was a, a building sense of England's importance on the international stage. There was excitement about what English could do. Um, there was a new there were new generations of, of poets that were coming out of the universities that didn't have there, there, there was a kind of a glut. There weren't, there weren't enough jobs for them, so they ended up in London, um, trained in the humanist schools. I mean, think all of this, and then you combine that with this burgeoning theatrical industry. Um, you, and you cannot forget, you absolutely cannot forget the print trade, uh, a burgeoning print trade uh, that had been around for 100 years and was really starting to come into its own. Um, I think all of that... Uh, that is what Shakespeare was lucky enough to be a part of, and he took advantage of it. I think one thing that I always think about, though, is in terms of Shakespeare, and, and it's kind of a version of, of saying, you know, how he made us human. I think he, he came to be when people were thinking about what it meant to be human in a way that he was uniquely able to address. Um, and that, that is because of his, his background in Stratford, in some ways not going to university. And I know that's kind of a strange thing to say because it's always associated with classicism, but I think there were things that happened through native traditions that allowed him to see things in interesting ways and in new ways. Um, and I think his ultimately his focus on selfhood and subjectivity came from a lot of different sources, but for whatever reason, he was very, very good at responding to that and producing art that, that uh, furthered those interests. And then, of course, that's where we are today, 400 years later. We are obsessed with selfhood and subjectivity, so he speaks to us very loudly. Um, but I don't think that it's fair to say that he, you know, he did it all on its own. I think he, he was a part of a time. I think he was a, he was a keen observer of of human behavior and human interaction. And that's, I mean, you can be very well trained in art, but not necessarily understand those things. And I think he was less formally trained in art, but much more experienced and, and fluent with, with the way humans were with each other. And, and, but at the same time, very intensely curious about, um, you know, historical legacies of various kinds, um, you know, the monarchic plays, the Henry IV plays, the Henry VI plays. Um, he, I think he thought about those things in a very, his plays show us that he thought about those things in an integrated way. Can you talk a little about his subject matter? What kinds of topics and stories attracted him? Well, it, it varied over the course of his career. So um, he moved from comedies to tragedies, and, and then later in, his, in the historical plays that drew very much on um, published chronicles, Hollinshed's chronicles, and um, things that were happening. And later in his career, the romances, which are actually my favorite. Um, 
where he's very reflective of, I think, reflecting on kind of longer arcs of life. Did he have a particular strength when it came to genre? Yes. I mean, <laughs> I think I think the comedies um, are, I mean, I personally, they're, they're probably the, the kind of subgenre that I like, that I enjoy the most. Um, romantic comedy, um, but it was, you know, I mentioned the native tradition. It's inflected by a kind of uh, folk uh, wisdom that he had, understanding customs and rituals and producing plays that are called green world plays that are interested in transformation and possibility. And I, the young Shakespeare is, a, I think, a very, uh, in the comedies, is a is a very uh, idealistic, energetic, uh, hopeful, not I mean, he is, at the same time as he always is, he's antithetical and he's always able to see, and this is one of the things that makes him great, he can always see two sides of a question, it seems, and it's one of the reasons it's very hard to pin him down uh, in terms of what he's trying to teach us or what he's trying to say. But I think he, he's gifted there. I, he, of course, is gifted with the tragedies um, as well. I mean, I think most of the things... And you know, the romances were considered comedies, so Jen and I don't disagree. Ultimately, we both <laughs> love the comedies. They were considered comedies until the 19th century, I think. Shakespeare today feels reserved for elites and people that have the education to engage with and understand him. Uh, and Shakespeare, I guess, toward the end of his life was kind of an elite himself. Has his work always been seen as for the elites? Yeah, we, we kind of talked a little bit about this. I don't no, it wasn't. I mean, it, particularly when it was um, when the plays were going on in London at the time, they were by no means for the elite. Um, and we have a sense of, you know, just as, as by way of example, if you look at the Globe Theater and the the enormous, um, it really is a large space for people, for groundlings to stand, that it would have been pretty inexpensive. I mean, to have the seated area up above is was not and that would have been more reserved for the elite but yeah I think it's actually unfortunate that it's for the that we see it as an elitist thing now because Shakespeare has is so interested in characters that are not elite it, it is interesting in the last few years and I um, that <clears throat> there's kind of been a battle waged over whether Shakespeare cared about his literary legacy at all mm -hmm. uh, which would maybe align with the elite elitism that you're talking about and I think um, there are those that say that towards the end of his career he did become interested in that legacy um, and produced plays that were longer that were more complicated that he would have liked the fact that a first folio with his very scary looking image the draft shoot uh, etching portrait on it he would have liked that because it makes him look uh, like some kind of literary forefather of sorts but um there are others that would say that he was only interested in writing for the professional theaters uh, throughout his career, and as Jen said, those theaters were uh, even even though after 1606-1608, when when they when his company bought into Blackfriars and they had a more a more expensive venue to perform their plays, he still performed his other he still his plays were still performed at the amphitheater playhouses. So I think he. I think it, it is very wrong to think of him um, in those terms, at least in terms of how, even if even if at, at the end of his career things were changing a bit and how he saw himself and his work, I think by and large there still was a, a person who wanted to write for, uh, for the larger community that was England. Um, and, uh, and I think he, he took pleasure in that. What uh, social issues from the time played 
the biggest roles in his writing. Well, politics. He was interested in, in politics um, of the monarchy and the legitimacy of the monarchy. Mm-hmm. Um, he's he's very interested, I think, in gender politics. But of course, I'm going to say that because mm. I'm interested in gender myself. So, but I, so many of his plays have the these tensions between men and women, between other men, and and also a kind of. Um, and this is one of the ways that I think they resonate today for us is that there's a kind of fluidity of gendered identity that anticipates ways that we talk about gender fluidity now, mm-hmm. um, which is not to say that it's the same or that there's been a kind of gradual trajectory necessarily, but that there, there are ways that it's, it's not unlike the kind of fluidity we think of now. He's interested in class. I mean, so he, he is himself socially ambitious, but I think he's also, he's not one just to celebrate um, the aristocracy. Yeah, he's not one to celebrate anyone, I think, no. in, in straightforward terms. I mean, even his great characters like Henry V or, or Hamlet or, Le- well, obviously Lear, um, he's always, that's what makes him fascinating is it's, it's, it's never simple. There's always... There always are lingering doubts. He always gives us complications. Uh, he, he doesn't. He's not. He doesn't create uh, straightforward heroes in that mm-hmm. way. I don't think he's interested in that kind of work. And that 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 I think makes him mm-hmm. why we like him so much today. That he gives us complicated scenarios, complicated social situations that that can be understood in different ways. The literary critic Harold Bloom made the case that Shakespeare invented the human personality. So while we're talking about race and gender, uh, I wanted to ask whether it's fair to call Shakespeare's grasp of modern human emotion universal. Am I going to answer that? Mm-hmm. Okay, yeah. right. Um, okay, so no. <laughs> I disagree. But I disagree with the premise that any one writer will capture... I mean, among other things, that any one writer will capture the human condition. I mean, Shakespeare was, he I've already said, he's very much um, able to see multiple perspectives and interested in those multiple perspectives, but does he embody those? No. Is he fully representing them? No. And so to make a claim about how he invents the human is really about him inventing a kind of human that is white, (laughs) male. Like Harold Bloom. Like Harold Bloom. (laughs) Let's say a listener is in a similar position to me as a Shakespeare novice. I've read a couple of plays, some of the sonnets, and that was mostly for school. Uh, I've seen Zeffirelli's Romeo and Juliet Mm -hmm. and the Leonardo DiCaprio version. Um, But you guys are really making me feel like I'm missing out on something here. So what should I do next? What what do you see as the best Shakespeare gateway drug? There, uh, I'll say this, um, and this, there's a lot of answers to that. I'm kind of excited right now. The new globe um, on the south bank of, of uh, in London um, of the Thames has has put out a, an amazing series of recorded uh, productions, and these are the quality of these are better than anything I've ever seen. So you need to see Shakespeare in performance, and you need to see it done by people that know how to deal with the language, that have a sense of the spatial demands. And I think many of the productions at the New Globe meet that criteria. So you can download these for, I think, 10, po- 10 pounds a, a play, and you, you own it at that point. But there there's some, we just I just showed my students a production of theirs of Henry VIII, 
everybody loves Henry. You know, does he even know that he he wrote a play called Henry VIII, and they were riveted. Uh, the sound quality, I mean, it, it's incredible. So I think that they are really providing something new and special, uh, and I, I commend them for it. So that would be one thing you could do to see good Shakespeare done at pretty easily. But if you had to choose one Shakespeare play, what would be your gateway drug? Oh, it's always Midsummer for me. Really? But, mm-hmm, yeah. I was thinking Macbeth, maybe. I was thinking Macbeth. Yeah, that's a downer, downer need, drug. Need, so, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah. I don't see. Clearly, I don't like the feel good plays, uh, and you do. Fair enough. Well, Midsummer doesn't have to be fair. I think we I need feel a little bit more all. death in the plays. A little more death. Yes. Okay, so that's Macbeth. True. All right. Well, that's, you know, Pyramus and Thisbe, they go down. And then they get back up. Yeah. <laughs> well, that is where we're going to have to end it. Thank you both so much for being here. Sure, thank, thank you. Thank you. And thank you for joining me for Southern Wonder.